This is Exchange at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The United States has elected Donald Trump to be its next president. As he begins his transition to Washington, it's up to folks like my guest here today, Alec Phillips, to sort out his likely policy agenda and determine what a Trump administration might mean for the U.S. and the world. Alec is a political economist focused on the United States for Goldman Sachs Research. Welcome, Alec. Thanks. So um, a lot of uncertainty around what a Trump administration will or won't do, given the tenor of the campaign and the like. But let's start with what it can and can't do on its own. Where could we see President Trump act unilaterally? And what policy areas from his agenda would require congressional support and particularly the support of Democrats in the minority party. Right, so there are actually a number of things that he can do from his agenda that would be possible without Congress getting involved at all. I think the two most important ones from an economic point of view, first, trade policy, and then second, some changes on immigration. So on trade, you know, the president does have pretty broad authority to adjust tariffs, pull out of trade deals, et cetera. And on immigration, as we've seen, the current president is able to use executive orders to make adjustments to enforcement of current rules, and Trump probably could as well. Beyond that, you know, the other big focus, I think, is going to be for a lot of people what he does just on the regulatory side. And so you can, you know, roll back regulations that were uh, implemented by the previous administration, though that takes time. Or because you know, of comment periods and the like? Because or? of, yeah, the whole rulemaking process, it probably would take, you know, a year or more in a lot of cases. So undoing a rule takes as much time as putting one in place? Probably at least, because you also have to then come up with a new rule, too. But they, they will have, you know, at least four years. And so they will have the time to, to do some of that. And then, of course, the other thing on the regulatory side is just changes going forward in terms of how new things are implemented. So for places where maybe regulations haven't been finalized, they can be finalized in a different direction. So there is you know, quite a bit that the Trump administration will be able to do without Congress. But on the really big things, Congress will have to be involved. And so there, I think of it you know, basically in two buckets, the group of issues that need 60 votes in the Senate and therefore need Democratic support, and those include... Because of the procedural rules of the Senate? Because of the procedural rules of the Senate, you need 60 votes to break a filibuster, and they've got, uh, Republicans are gonna probably have 52 seats, and so with 52 seats, um, they're gonna need eight Democrats. There are some exceptions to that, and so the exceptions would be on sort of fiscal-related legislation, where they can use something called the reconciliation process to pass bills that deal with tax policy, certain areas of spending, as long as they're involved in sort of the broader budget process with a simple majority. And so the question is, you know, will they try to pass a tax cut? Will they try to do the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, other things like that, through uh, the budget process, meaning just with just Republican simple votes? Simple majority vote, right? Simple majority, or will they try to do it in a bipartisan way, which would mean at least some Democratic support? And if we think about tax reform, you could see tax cuts and repatriation, obviously reasonably popular, could get done in theory pretty quickly. But if you're going to do a comprehensive reform of the tax code, as folks have talked about, that could take quite some time. Yeah. So uh, to me, it feels like the sort of best case scenario in terms of timing is getting something done by, call it like July or September 
for a reform bill, but even that of next year of yeah. 2017. Yeah. But even doing that, I think, would probably mean only kind of a slimmed down reform bill, because, I mean, if, you, we, if we think back to the 80s when they did the last tax yeah. reform bill, it basically took them five years. Right. right. So. Right. Um, and this is a complicated thing, and right and now, and if anything, the tax code's gotten more complicated since then. That's right? the issue, right? right? So, and so, you know, I think it is going to be difficult for them to get going quickly on this, apart from maybe just doing sort of a tax cut, and like you said, maybe repatriation along with that. But the problem is, at well, a once you do that, it's harder to do the exactly, comprehensive tax exactly. reform, right? so because I, the easy. Yeah. The sugar that makes the medicine yeah, go I think down they have well. to do the whole thing in one big in one big package, which. I think basically means that we're going to be waiting for, you know, at least half of next year, if not more than half of next year, to see how all of this plays out. You know, with that said, I do think that a tax bill next year is likely to happen. And the question is really more like what happens rather than if something happens. And sometimes the signaling is just as important to markets and to businesses as the final product. Um, because they'll see apparently least, so far we've certainly seen that we have seen right? that in the markets already yeah. just the signaling of potential big tax cuts potentially uh, infrastructure spending which we could chat about next has already had a dramatic impact on the psychology of, of the markets and the business Can yeah you know? uh, no I mean I think right now people are just trying to sort of parse through the uh, Ryan plan the House Republican tax plan the Trump plan, try you know, looking at the infrastructure proposals that are out there, and there are multiple infrastructure proposals, trying to think number one about you know what the substance of some of these things will be, but then also number two, like what is politically possible, even if you just need a simple majority. If we look at Trump's tax plan, for instance, it would probably raise the deficit by 400, 500 billion dollars a year. So and that basically trillion-ish over ten years. Yeah, exactly. And so that I mean, but so that means that Republicans in Congress or Democrats, if they go along with it too, would be casting a vote to raise the budget deficit to over a trillion dollars a year. And so on the one hand, you can say, well, a tax cut of two percent of GDP sounds like it could happen. On the other hand, you know, a proactive vote to raise the budget deficit to over a trillion dollars per year seems less likely. And there's been a lot of resistance by congressional Republicans to raising the debt limit, and it's been a slog every time for the president to get that approved. How would that issue fare in the face of a massive, massive tax cut? Well, so the kind of good news for the debt limit, just in terms of the process of getting through it, is with a unified government, it's probably not going to draw as much attention right. and be as controversial. Right. The but it's still sort a tough of, vote for some fiscal conservatives. Yeah, and, and so I think the, you know, the typical strategy, and certainly what we've seen in previous administrations when you have single-party control, both during the Bush administration and then the early part of the Obama administration, is basically pass it along with a couple of sort of other, you know, fiscal responsibility items, whether it's budget rules changes or a small package of spending cuts or something else. This year, it's obviously or next or year, a plan it's going to have a plan. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but and so, but next year, I think it's going to be a different situation because whether they do it before or after a tax cut there is probably going to be a vote to raise the debt limit and probably going to be a vote to increase the deficit occurring in the same year. Right. And you know, people can make arguments about the growth effects, the positive growth effects that come out of a tax cut, and we agree with that. There probably will be some positive effect from that. But overall, the likelihood is that the deficit you know, rises as a result, and that's going to be a tricky situation for them. And it's one of the reasons that we think that the tax cuts probably get scaled down 
from what has been at least initially proposed. So infrastructure spending was a rare area of bipartisan agreement during the campaign, and we all heard Mr. Trump reaffirm his commitment to a big infrastructure package during his acceptance speech. What would fiscal spending of the magnitude he's proposed in the area of infrastructure mean for the economy, and where would it go? Right. So uh, the proposal is basically $100 billion a year in additional infrastructure investment. But one thing about this proposal, which isn't, I don't think, totally well known, is at least if we look at the proposal that came out from a few of his advisors, it mostly involves a small amount of federal tax credits and then a large amount of private investment that's incentivized by those They're tax credits. They're not pure federal So this isn't dollars, pure federal so. spending. And, there, and that has advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the advantage is that theoretically, if you have the private sector trying to decide the economics of each project, you might actually get some sort of you know, higher return projects. The disadvantage is that it's probably going to take longer because you need the private sector to step up and... Because you're going to need people to plan all of these things basically from scratch. Right. And, you know, there are certain types of infrastructure that I'm not sure are going to be necessarily appropriate for that type of thing. So as an example, you look at, you know, state and local roads, for instance. I mean, the typical infrastructure plan would have the federal government give money to state governments, and then they spend it on whatever, in you know, various forms of infrastructure, particularly transportation. This model would appear to be more of basically like a toll road type model or... Which are you know, not uncontroversial. Not uncontroversial. And so the trick with this plan is that these projects all need to turn a profit. They need to make money. So that's going to be a lot different from the typical sort of federal spending where, you know, you have um, local roads financed by state and local government. You have interstate roads and other uh, sort of, you know, some public transit things, et cetera financed by the federal government. And all of that is not intended to generate a, a return in terms of specific projects. Those are financed through the gas, uh, gasoline tax, et cetera. And so, you know, this is a different type of infrastructure spending than what the federal government is typically used to. It's not to say that it can't happen, but it's probably going to take a lot more planning than, say, just adding another $50 billion to the highway bill or something like that. But there's also probably a limit to how much of that you can really do at least do quickly. Mm -hmm. And so our general take is that, you know, this probably would be positive if it happened. You could also probably do some spending on infrastructure and that would be positive. But either way, it's going to take a while for this to actually affect the economy. So we don't really see a big effect. Well, we see virtually no effect in 2017 and probably only a small effect in 2018. And then from there, it's really just going to depend a lot more on the specifics of the deal and how, you know, how big it is. Infrastructure spending obviously can create jobs, and that's been a good argument for it over time. But as your colleagues in Goldman Sachs research have pointed out, the U.S. economy has just about reached full employment today. What are the implications of fiscal spending of any sort, really, but especially infrastructure spending with employment at current levels? So, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, basically, where we think this comes out is that you have a boost to employment, which means an even lower unemployment rate. You probably have at least a, a moderate uptick uh, in inflation as a result of this. And those two things together basically mean that the Fed ends up raising rates or raising rates further than they would otherwise or more quickly than they would otherwise as a result. So, you know, I think from an economic perspective in the very near term, the fiscal piece alone could be worth, you know, in, in our view, something like half a point of, of GDP each year for the next couple of years, something like that. 
Um, of higher GDP. Of higher GDP, clear, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. no, that's, that's the point, right? <laughs> uh, but then the sort of the flip side to that is you're probably also going to have a Fed response where they then are hiking rates more quickly because they're seeing the unemployment rate decline, they're seeing a little bit more inflation, and so they're kind of pulling out of accommodative monetary policy more quickly than they otherwise would, which would offset some of that positive growth effect. Right. Let's get back to taxes for a second. You talked about the difficulty of passing uh, a, a comprehensive bill in, in the short term. Let's talk about some of the particulars. President-elect Trump proposed rather significant changes to the corporate tax code, including a provision, which we talked about briefly, for repatriating cash from profits that U.S. corporations earn overseas and dropping the corporate rate down to 15%. Is that kind of dramatic reshaping of the corporate tax code something that could get done with this Congress? I think... A reshaping of the corporate tax code is pretty likely with this Congress. The question is, will it actually be what Trump has proposed, both in terms of the magnitude and then also just for that matter in terms of the details? So, you know, first in terms of the magnitude, you know, his plan is more expensive. It's expensive, uh, more expensive in part because, just because it's just a lower, lower. Yeah. a lower rate. It's a lower rate. And in part because he, uh, in, in the plan that was uh, put out during the campaign, doesn't actually take away some of the other incentives that corporations currently get. And so without doing that kind of reform aspect, you end up basically just getting a lower rate and therefore a bigger revenue reduction. By contrast, if you look at Paul Ryan's plan, for instance, and so this is the House Republican plan, there the rate isn't as low, so it would be 20% instead of Trump's 15. 15 yeah. But there's also, I won't get into the detail on all of it, but there's a lot of other stuff Loophole going on closers. in there. Uh, right. So, you know, getting rid of the deduction for corporate interest expense, changing the way that companies depreciate, and then also a slew of things on the international side, which, you know, could end up uh, generating some revenue too, although, you know, there are things working in both directions. And so, you know, I think from from the perspective of either the details in terms of the rates and so on or the magnitude, you know, I think probably it ends up being scaled down from what Trump has. But at the same time, if there's one thing that seems like it's probably going to happen next year, it's some type of, you know, tax legislation. And I would think that the corporate side probably ends up being easier than the individual side. Just because, I mean, as difficult as corporate reform might be, individual reform is that much is harder. Is that much harder, yeah. And, and with corporate reform, you do have the argument made constantly by companies that the United States has a unique system, an extraterritorial right. system, and, and these days, very high rates relative to the rest of the G8 and the developed world. Right, and that's where the repatriation thing comes in, too. Right. Um, so, you know, there you've got... $2.9 trillion in earnings that uh, U.S. companies have accumulated overseas that have not been taxed by the U.S. Not all of that is in cash, but probably over a trillion dollars of it is in cash. And so the question here is, you know, how do you deal with that existing set of earnings before you move to the new system? And so if they can, you know, if they can tax that as a means of closing the books out on the old system, that'll generate a decent amount of revenue that then which, they can which use. Which they tried to do once before. They did do it once before, and but, we but saw... But it was sort of a, it was sort of almost more like a holiday rather than a permanent exactly. change in the system. And the big difference is that the last time around it was voluntary, this time it would be mandatory. So last time around you had companies repatriate a little bit over $300 billion, and they, you and know... what was the rate then? Like so the rate was or... five and a quarter back then. Yep. Trump's rate now is 10, 10%. proposed. Yep. Uh, the House Republicans have something lower between 3 and 8%, depending on the details. 
And so, you know, I think there's a general sense that doing something like this makes sense. But again, the question is going to be, can they get kind of comprehensive, at least corporate tax reform done? If they can't get the tax reform piece done, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that they're going to do the repatriation on its own because they really need that yeah, they need to pay for the rest to of do it. For that, yeah. A big focus for the Republicans in Congress and, and to some extent uh, President-elect Trump in his campaign was health care. And specifically they've talked about repealing the Affordable Care Act, which is another uh, massive mm -hmm. undertaking. How might that play out and what are the implications for people, investors in the healthcare sector or businesses operating in the healthcare sector? So that one's going to be really complicated. The simple version is that Republicans have the ability to undo most, but not all, of Obamacare. Most meaning all of the fiscal pieces. So the tax credits to buy health insurance, the big expansion of Medicaid, which provided a lot of the total coverage expansion. Because those were done through the because reconciliation those were done process the with a simple majority vote. Those are fiscal issues, ultimately, and so they can be dealt with with a simple majority. There are a bunch of other issues, including some that President-elect Trump has already said he wants to preserve. So as an example, the ability for people who have pre-existing health conditions to get coverage without having to pay really, really high premiums or just getting denied entirely. Those would need 60 votes to change because they are non-fiscal issues in the end. And so the question is going to be, are they actually able to put together a new package that replaces the existing law without spending even more money, preserving roughly the same amount of coverage that is also in keeping with kind of Republican principles. And it's going to be a pretty difficult thing to do. I mean, we've seen some you know, hints about what this might be. So as an example, instead of having the exchanges that uh, exist right now where you know, individuals can go in, pick a plan, uh, the government will pay for part of it, they'll pay for the rest of it. Instead of that, maybe you'd have more of a sort of a free market system, not organized by the government so much, but you'd still have tax credits ultimately paying for it. On the Medicaid expansion, instead of having basically a, you know, a set expansion that the federal government lays out, you have a proposal to basically give the states the money and they can kind of go do what they want with it. The old block grant. Kind the of block system. grant, exactly. Yeah. And so the funny, now the funny thing on that is that on the one side, you would say, well, block grants are usually intended to save money and to ultimately reduce Medicaid spending. And they probably would over time do that compared to just current law. At the same time, there are actually a, probably a number of states that have been holding back and expanding Medicaid because of the politics around it. They don't want to embrace a democratic they don't want to program, basically right. implement Obamacare. Right. And, and if Obamacare ends up being dismantled and replaced with something else that probably looks not totally different from it anyway. Um, but under a Republican. But under a Republican Congress administration, yeah. maybe they'll actually be willing to do some of that. So yeah. overall, I mean, look, there's a ton of uncertainty about this. I guess I would say if our starting assumption is that you're not going to see a Republican Congress and administration pull coverage away from, you know, 20 million people, then they're still going to have to spend most of the money that's currently being spent. But they'll um, just be spending it spend differently. Spend it in a different way. But I think for more all, reliance on tax credits or incentives to save, like health savings accounts and the like. And maybe, you know, so on the tax side, instead of, for instance, doing a sliding scale subsidy where people with lower incomes get a really big subsidy, people with higher incomes get little subsidy, maybe that they end up just doing sort of like a flat subsidy and everybody gets a certain amount. So there are proposals like that. 
I mean, I think from the market perspective and for that matter from the economic perspective, the biggest question is going to be, is there a significant pullback in just the total amount that's being spent on healthcare? It seems unlikely that it's going to happen if you work under the assumption that they're not going to try to pull coverage away from the people who are currently getting it. And I, that is kind of my general assumption. Now, as long as... Well, if you're going to take something away, sometimes there's a tendency of Congress to promise to take it away in the future, but to not take it away today. Right. And, you know, and most of these proposals, I mean, it's early days still, but most of these proposals typically wouldn't phase in until 2018, maybe even 2019. After the midterm election. After the midterm election. Right. So, you know, so I think it's going to take a, a while. We've, we saw a pretty, like right after the election, we saw a pretty sharp reaction in healthcare stocks, basically assuming that a lot of this money was going to go away. So if you look at hospitals, for instance, which really depend on a lot of this, you saw a very negative reaction. But in the end, I'm not sure that actually most of this money goes away. It's just going to be, I think it's going to be redistributed. You mentioned trade is one area where the president has pretty wide latitude to act on his own. Share some of your insights from your colleagues at GS Research on what a more sort of protectionist bent, for lack of a better phrase, might mean for the economy and, and what that might even look like. Because yeah. we haven't really seen that in this country. We've seen a little bit of adjusting of tariffs in the steel sector right. uh, last decade. But but we haven't seen a full-scale sort of raising of tariffs in in long time. All the, all the uh, direction's been the other It's always other been side. going down, more or less. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in general, I should start out by saying there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty around what's going to happen on trade policy. I think probably more than a lot of these other areas. Probably because it's so hard to fathom exactly what it looks like. Well, and because, frankly, I, th I mean, I think Mr. Trump's proposals during the campaigns were so far away from what other Republican candidates have talked about in the past in terms of trade restrictions on, you know, certain countries or getting out of trade deals, etc., that people are just, I think, having a hard time figuring out how much of this is real and how much is not. But if we assume that, you know, some of it is real, um, and our working assumption is that, you know, maybe a, a, a small, smaller increase in tariffs could happen, even though we wouldn't expect, you know, the full range of uh, Trump's proposals during the campaign to take effect, then I guess, you know, bottom line is, number one, and probably most importantly, it would be inflationary. And so you would end up seeing basically import prices rise as a result. Um, you would probably see some production shift domestically, not a lot, but maybe a little bit. And the cost differential there is going to also push prices up. And so overall, if we take just, you know, even a scaled down version of what Trump has proposed, you're adding, you know, at least a few tenths to inflation. That, you know, probably, you know, prompts a, a Fed response. And so, you know, you get a little bit of a sort of a negative effect from that. On growth, it's actually, it's a little bit trickier because in the near term, it could actually be growth positive simply because if you cut the, off imports, you know, people are going to have to get uh, well, their consumption from You're measuring the someplace. gross domestic product, exactly. right? So exactly. The, the D in domestic is important, right. right? Longer term, you know, if, if all of this were to play out, you would have, you know, basically two big offsets to that. One would be that, you know, U.S. trade policy doesn't happen in isolation and there would be retaliation mm -hmm. from whatever country. So let's say if, you know, if we apply tariffs on China, they're going to apply tariffs on us. We saw that you mentioned the steel uh, tariffs earlier. We've seen that even just with these sort of smaller things where there is this tit for tat. So and that they, would, and, and other countries are reasonably sophisticated about wh what our pain points are. Right. 
So if you're looking at, you know, exports of very large industrial goods, for instance, uh, you know, maybe some airplanes Planes or some agriculture from uh, wheat from the Midwest. Uh, yeah. Yep, exactly. Those are, you know, those are places uh, where you would expect to see a hit on the other side. And so even though initially you would probably have a little bit of a boost to domestic production and for that matter, GDP, over the long run, we're skeptical that that would actually be a positive and you could end up seeing actually a negative uh, outcome from that. So what about regulation more broadly? I mean, Mr. Trump opposed regulation throughout his campaign, talked about the overbearing regulators and overbearing regulation. Where might he start? I mean, there's a lot of regulation. There's food safety, drug yeah. safety. There's obviously regulation of the financial industry. Where might you see the impacts play out quickly? So, I mean, we've seen a variety of different things highlighted by people around the Trump campaign um, who in some cases have moved into the transition, in many cases are just still kind of advisors. And so, you know, those things range from, you mentioned uh, drug safety. So there's discussion of, you know, looking at the FDA. There's been a lot of discussion. Typically of, that means speeding up approvals. Speeding up approvals and drugs. sort of streamlining things. Yep. So that was in fact one of the key things in, in uh, Mr. Trump's transition documents that have just been posted in the last right. few days. On the labor side, uh, there's been focus on the overtime rule, for instance, which is just coming through its final form from the Obama administration right now. I think it's pretty likely that they would want to make some adjustments to those uh, regulations. On the financial side, you know, there are a variety of different things out there. Um, one, for instance, is the fiduciary rule, uh, which is actually also a Department of Labor rule, but deals with retirement accounts and so on. That's been a particular focus, but there probably will be other things as well. And then even, you know, on the, uh, on the energy and environment side, um, there's been a lot of discussion of EPA regs in particular, you know, maybe fighting uh, some of the uh, regulations related to carbon emissions, the clean power plan, clean power for plants. instance. Right, right, right. So, Which... you know, and all of these things are going to take a while to sort out. Basically, the story is that if any regulation is final and was finalized before, call it like May, June of this year, they're going to have to go through the entire regulatory process again. Whereas if it was a proposed rule, if they it have was more a, latitude to scale it back. There, Yeah, there's two ways that they could do it a little bit more quickly. One is proposed rules. They can basically just not do a final rule right. unless, you know, unless they're required by law to do it. And then the other is actually for rules that have become uh, final recently, there is this thing called the Congressional Review Act, which basically allows Congress early next year to undo regulations that were enacted or implemented basically, you know, starting kind of around June of this year. We'll see, you know, but there but there could be some action on that front as well. Obviously in the campaign there's a lot of attention in the debates and elsewhere about Supreme Court appointments. But the president also has the power to appoint officials to the Federal Reserve. You said our next president will have an unusual degree of influence here. Uh, how so? Well, so right now there are two uh, spots on the Fed board that are vacant. President Obama sent nominations to the Senate, but those were never confirmed. So President Trump will be able to um, make both of those nominations. So that'll influence uh, the board. Now, there's a little bit of sort of mechanics that you have to get through because in order to nominate a, a Fed chair, and Janet Yellen's term uh, expires in January uh, 2018. So he's going to probably need to nominate somebody like in, I don't know, 
the summer or early fall of 2017 at latest in order to get through that process. Yeah, it's a, at least a four-month process. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so um, what would probably make sense is to save one of those board positions for, for the, the next chair. chair. Right. Which then leaves the other board position, which is thought to go to the vice chair for supervision, which is a, a vacant spot right now, but will probably be filled. This is the person in charge of supervising this is sort of the banks, financial and the regulatory, which has uh, been that, that's really been empty since the creation of the chair. It has never been filled. It has right. never been filled, and so on an well, acting great basis. Great Washington uh, exactly. jobs that no one's ever taken. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and so. You know, uh, on an informal basis, uh, Governor Tarullo has been, you know, focused on regulation, but this would then be sort of the formal version of this job. And so, you know, the so if, would you expect if if someone were appointed and confirmed in that job, obviously that that would that person would take over the that the portfolio would have that that Governor Tarullo has responsibility had. then for right. that portfolio and right. what you know how Governor Tarullo reacts to that remains to be seen and what his role would be remains to be seen mm -hmm. and he's been asked about this repeatedly over the last few days and has yeah, not sure uh, not I'm sure said he's, anything I'm sure he's uh, kept his counsel yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. but you know but overall those are the two sort of big jobs that have to get filled and they probably would both then take those two vacancies one would imagine that over time you know, certainly in terms of the appointment of the next chair, but then maybe also the vice chair for supervision, the appointment of those people would then open up additional board spots that would then become vacant. So we'll probably have another couple. On the of, chair typically doesn't stay on past. The chair the will probably leave, and, you know, then we'll see what other vacancies open up. But there's at least then one vacancy, if not another couple of vacancies. And the other one I should mention is Vice Chair Fisher. His term is up in July 2018. So that's going to be another one. Right. And so what we're kind of looking at is actually five spots on the Fed board majority turning the board. over. The, yeah. yeah, the vast majority of the board right. turning over in the next year. The next year, year and a half. And, but what do we know about President Trump's views on monetary policy? He's talked a little bit about it in the campaign. Not much. Yeah. Not much. I mean, I, you know, what, what seems clear is that he does not like where Fed policy has been over the last few years. What's less clear is what he wants it to do from here. So, I mean, you know, he, he's laid out on multiple occasions his concerns about the fact that rates were too low for too long and that that might have created, you know, asset bubbles or other sort of artificial effects on financial markets. What's less but he also said he's a low interest rate guy. Well, um, being yeah, in real I think, estate, I think as yeah, a businessman, he exactly. likes low interest I think he rates. Said from a personal perspective, he's a yeah. low interest rate guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I think the question is going to be, you, you know, you typically associate criticism of the Fed's policy or you know recent policy with a hawkish fis uh, monetary stance, but in this case, it's not really. To your point, I mean, he's a low interest rate guy, and for that matter, he's also the incoming president, and the incoming president typically wouldn't want an overly hawkish policy. So I think it's really unclear where, you know, he ends up coming out on monetary policy. I mean, our working assumption is that the next chair, assuming that Yellen doesn't get reappointed, which he said he is unlikely to do, is going to be just marginally more hawkish than Janet Yellen has been, but that it's probably not going to be a huge change. But with that said, there is a lot you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around this. And it's, you know, I don't think you could rule out the possibility that he appoints somebody who's actually similar to Yellen or even maybe a little bit more dovish. So not to say that it's going to happen, 
but I don't think you can rule it out. So there's a wide range of outcomes. Yeah, we've seen obviously presidents come in with uh, a stance on that and change their minds. Right. President Reagan famously did. So on a lot of issues, we've talked about the sort of unpredictability and unknowability of where things might go. But on a lot of issues, President-elect Trump stands well outside of traditional Republican orthodox economic policy thinking, certainly on trade. Right. How might they play to his advantage or disadvantages as he works to enact his proposals is it possible he'll get support from some unlikely corners as he well yeah ahead? I mean I think there are certain and so if we go back to election night and the speech he gave the one thing that he pointed out and maybe it was because he was trying to be conciliatory and think about bipartisan areas but the one thing he pointed out was infrastructure for instance and that's I mean that's an area where he probably can get pretty substantial democratic support depending on you know the details of the deal so you know I do think that there are some areas where his unconventional approach probably helps. There, I'll say there are also areas where maybe it's just more pragmatism or flexibility. So tax policy is probably one of those, where I don't think he has really strong views about the details of tax just policy. Just get it done. Just get it done. Fix it, make it simpler. And so that, you know, yeah. that can actually that kind can be of smooth the yeah. process. Yeah. With that said... I work, the president I work for, President Bill Clinton, spent a lot of time on these details, which oftentimes slowed down the legislative process, but um, arguably had uh, positive impacts in the long run. Yeah. Now, from the financial market perspective, though, that can also be, I don't want to say a problem, but that can be, you know, a little bit more interesting, right? Because you don't really know on some of these things where policy is going to end up, as opposed to, say, a president who comes in with very clear ideological views on a variety of different issues. And so when we think about you know, the prospects for increased volatility or trying to predict what's gonna happen a year from now for certain sectors. People have to be paying a lot of attention to Congress. We are gonna be paying a lot of attention to presidential appointments in the near term, Personnel. to you know, announcements about what's coming first and what's coming later and sort of what is that set of priorities. And then to your point also, a lot of attention to like, where is the marginal support for different things in Congress? I mean, we know, you know, on certain issues what congressional leadership is saying, but where are the actual votes for certain things? And I mean, you know, getting back to kind of where we started, to me, one of the biggest questions right now is, you know, for the last several years, Republicans have been very focused on reducing the deficit or at least not expanding it significantly. And the Trump agenda in general and certainly has been interpreted by the markets this way, it's, is all about fiscal hawkish. expansion. Right, right. And where exactly that line is drawn, I think is going to be one of the critical things, but it's also one of those very uncertain things about the Trump administration where he is not a traditional Republican. He does not seem to have as much of a problem with borrowing, and that creates a lot of uncertainty. And that's what we're seeing right now. So what will you be watching over the first 100 days of the Trump administration to see where he's coming out on some of those issues? What are you going to be watching most closely? So apart from the fact that we still need to see kind of all of the appointments, and that will be the first signal, I guess I will be watching the budget process in particular because we're going to find out early on, putting aside all the specifics about tax policy and the rest of it, we're going to find out very early on what the overall view is on the, the deficit. The fiscal path, yep. And uh, just to put a point on it, you know, if you take even a fairly modest increase in the deficit, within the next, you know, three or four years, you're going to get to basically a trillion dollars per year. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be very interested to see 
whether the Trump administration, when they come out with their budget, and for that matter, Republicans in Congress, when they do their annual budget resolution, whether they are going to adopt that kind of framework instead of what they've done over the last few years, which is basically aim for a deficit that's going down, not up. So I think that's going to be one of the really big questions. You know, the other big question, I think, is a little bit more on the sort of the negative side, I guess, which is on trade policy. If you look at what President-elect Trump said about trade right before the election, he laid out the first 100 days agenda. And there were a number of things on sort of trade restrictions, currency manipulation, et cetera, et cetera, that were supposed to be done, if not on day one, very, very quickly. So I'll be watching kind of on day one to see how many of these things actually happen. You know, we wouldn't expect everything that he said on trade to come true, but that's going to be kind of a big early test, I think, because if we can get through the potentially you know, negative economic effects of trade restrictions and maybe immigration restrictions, a lot of the rest of the Trump agenda is probably you know, reasonably positive for the market and probably for growth, too. Great. Thanks for joining us. We'll have you back uh, after the first 100 days and we can chat about this again. Sounds good. Uh, that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on November 15, 2016. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.